Hey everyone, it's Mike Doherty. This week, we're rerunning a piece we put out one year ago. It was one of our favorite stories of last year, and apparently one of yours too. This ended up being our most downloaded podcast of 2018. So enjoy, and we'll be back with a run of new episodes starting next week. From Vermont Digger, I'm Mike Doherty. This is The Deeper Dig. We're going to be coming right by one of them here. We'll pull in. I'm riding through Brownington with our reporter Ann Wallace Allen and a realtor named Dan McClure. We're on sort of an unusual farm tour. There was nothing here two years ago. They built that barn. That barn was put up in a day. This barn looks practically brand new. It's what you imagine some of the weathered old barns around Vermont looked like when they were first built. And across the driveway, there's a boxy new two-story house with aluminum siding, which belongs to a farmer named Andy Shetler. Do you think that we could, talk, we could meet him? We'll see. Uh, typically, uh, I just pull up and somebody comes out. I would probably stay here until I... Dan asks us to wait in his truck because Andy doesn't know we're coming. We couldn't let him know because he doesn't use a phone or email or electricity. Andy is part of a wave of Amish farmers who are leaving their homes in Pennsylvania and Ohio. And they're coming here to the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. What were your first impressions when you heard there's this wave of Amish people coming here. I just was so interested and curious. And, um, you know, I've, like everybody else, I've seen the Amish. They're so picturesque and they're so um, distinctive. And I was very surprised to hear that there were Amish people in the Northeast Kingdom and that I hadn't heard about it before. When you talk about them being distinctive, what makes this group different from your average, everyday, modern Vermonter? Well, the Amish I've seen in Pennsylvania were, you know, driving the carts. That's what they're known for. They have horse-drawn carts, and they don't use electricity, and they wear black, and the men wear these broad-brimmed hats with a flat brim, and the women wear these long dresses with an apron, and they're just, they look completely out of, you know, they're from a different era. They look like they're from the 19th century, and most of what they do seems to be from the 19th century. They, I knew that they didn't have electricity. They didn't use electricity or phones or the Internet. The f- interesting thing about Brownington is, is that it's home to this museum that includes several 19th century buildings. So the Amish kind of fit in well with that setting. We see them all the time. How do you know it's them? <laughs> they clip-clop by on their horse and carriage. It adds to the ambiance quite nicely of the old Stonehouse Museum. <laughs> Molly Vesey is the director of the Stonehouse Museum. And she's hired the Amish to work on her buildings because they know these old building techniques. They've done roofing, and they've even built structures for them. Um, for instance, the Lawrence Barn needed re-roofing earlier this year. They assisted us in re-roofing it. They got it done in a day. There's a whole crew of men who are really knowledgeable in those building techniques. Um, the first thing they did when they got to Vermont was they looked for farms or land. They looked for inexpensive farms that they could fix up or houses that were in really bad shape that they could afford and fix up. And then they built these big, gorgeous barns together. So farming, from the few conversations I had with them, farming seems to be just absolutely central to their way of life. They also do woodworking. They make quilts. They make baked goods and sell them at farm stands. They're sort of diverse, they, but they, you know, they, they plow with horses and they do their farm work 
manually. They cut down trees manually. They do it all. I'm curious, when you started researching this story, did you have any concerns going in about treating with sensitivity a population that is known for being pretty private and also probably is not going to read what we write about them? They don't really interact with the media. They don't go online. How did you go about approaching that? I did feel really reticent about approaching them at first, and I was really grateful that Dan McClure could serve as a go-between for us because he could make it much less awkward for us to suddenly arrive out of the blue. Dan has a good understanding of them because he first showed them the farms and he invited them to stay in his house one night when they had asked for a place to sleep in his barn. And that kind of forged a a little bit of an alliance. They had written letters uh, probably over the last 10 years. We'd get letters asking for different information on farms and stuff. Five years ago is when they first started coming up Andy was one of the first ones that I met. Do you remember the first time that you started showing properties to Andy? Yeah, they uh, called me up from St. Johnsbury telling me they were on their way up. And this was in December. It was like 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And they wanted to look at a farm. And I said, well, by the time you get up here, it's going to be dark. I asked them where they were staying. And uh, they said that they wanted to camp out somewhere. And did I have a farm that they could set up tents, and I said, well, it's supposed to be like 10 degrees tonight because it's December. They asked if I had a barn. I said, yeah, I have a barn. He said, well, we'd be happy to stay in the barn. So I'm driving up, and as I get to the barn, I just drove straight through, brought them up to the house, and told them that they could stay here. So when we would get to a farm, Dan would get out and talk to the Uh, Amish people first and see if it was okay for us to come in and uh, meet with them. And in each case, we met in the barn with somebody who was working in there and had our conversations in the barn. The Amish farmers we visited asked not to be recorded or photographed, and some didn't want to talk to us at all. Can I ask just how that conversation went? Like, what what did they say? Uh, He said that. Said, you're doing a story and what attracted them to uh, Vermont and so on he said I'd rather not talk about it and he said I'd, I don't want people to use it one way or the other and he said I'd rather not be uh, interviewed so what were your impressions of the people we actually talked to They're, they were so polite you know they put down their tools and talked to us when we arrived without any prior notice. Levi Kaufman was shoeing a horse in the barn when we showed up and he put down his tools to talk to us. And I just felt a lot of respect and sort of gratitude to them for for sharing their story with us. I was surprised at how calm and unassuming and polite and friendly they were. So they they were very good at, at deflecting perhaps intrusive questions about why they had moved or how many children they had or things like that. But they were very skilled at doing that in a polite and uh, genial way. They answered our questions as well as they could, given that they didn't really want to go into a lot of detail about their decision making. Yeah, where do you think that sort of tendency towards privateness comes into play? Well, the, the first person we talked to, Andy Shetler, he's a little bit older. He said he didn't want to explain why they had chosen the Northeast Kingdom because he didn't want to have other people going up there to get great deals on land, too, and drive up land prices. He, <laughs> he felt that he'd discovered a really perfect place for them, and he sort of didn't want to advertise it. And did Dan talk to you about 
why these families are migrating to Vermont? He did, although that was one of the hardest questions to answer when I was up there. Um, he said that he thinks that with 10 or 12 children, they just need room to spread out because they do very much want all of their kids to farm, too. So with each generation, they need, you know, a lot more land. And he said he felt that they were running out of land in Pennsylvania and Ohio where they had been. I asked Dan how working with the Amish was different from working with his usual clients. Well, they don't talk a lot, <laughs> so it's hard to get anything out of them. They just want to see property, and you show it to them, and when you feel you found the property for them, you can kind of see it from their action and the questions they're asking. You know, if they're not asking a lot of questions, there's not a lot of interest. But once you get to a property that uh, uh, they seem to have some interest and can see that it could work for them, then, you, then you're bombarded with questions, and so. What kinds of questions? What what sorts of things are they asking? Well, first of all, you know the types of soils and how much is open, how much is wooded, and then uh, is there any other available properties nearby? And then they also want to know where the banks are and hardware stores and you know places for supplies. So, you know they they kind of want to know how how far things are because everything's done with horse and buggy and, you know, distance is an issue, so. I know that in most cases when I would ask directly, so why here and why did you decide to leave Pennsylvania? The answers were things like, well, my uncle had some land here or we had, you know, family who was looking at this area and it sounds like they all moved together. So they didn't give very clear reasons for why they were doing what they were doing. How big of a group are we talking about here? Did you get a sense of the overall scope of this uh, migration and the impact it's had on the area? Well, Andy said there's 10 families. Andy Shetler said that 10 families have now moved up. And those are very large families because they do have 10 to 12 kids. So I, I can't remember who said this, but they were estimating 50 or 60 people. I was talking to Molly Vesey about they have an annual fish fry at the Brownington, old Brownington Elementary School. And the Amish put it on as a fundraiser for their medical costs because they don't have health insurance. And uh, Molly said 400 people came to it. So they've obviously gotten to know the community, those the families that are here. So this property here that you see the White House was the first farm that was purchased. And it was a really run down and needed a lot of work. I would have tore the house down. They fixed it up, built a new barn, cleaned it up. And did you get a sense from Dan about how big of an impact it's had on the real estate market out there? If they're buying these huge properties and kind of coming in all as, as one group, is that having an effect on the overall makeup of the town? I did ask Dan that, and he was pretty low-key about the impact it's had over the last five years. I mean, he has sold a bunch of farms that he wouldn't have otherwise, and in some cases, they would approach the owners. Like, in one case, it was a, a couple who was living at the farm who were elderly, and when the, the Amish approached them and talked to them, they uh, they said, oh, we would like to sell our farm, and they moved. So they hadn't been planning to until they were approached about selling it. So it's made an impact, and it's all been in Brownington. So it's a little a little real estate boomlet. What's the relationship like between these families coming in and their neighbors who might be Brownington natives, people who have been there for generations and generations? 
uh, by all accounts, it's friendly. Uh, Molly says that she has been interacting on the phone with one of the Amish women who organizes the fish fry, and she, the lady uses her neighbor's phone to call when she needs to. And I asked the Amish themselves how they were getting along with the neighbors, and they said that they work with them and they get help from them. And Andy Shetler has a neighbor who serves as his broker when he sells his watermelons and his other melons down in Boston. She interacts with the market, and she also drives them down there. So they sound like they have a cooperative relationship with their neighbors. There are times when Dan plays this role, too. Hello. How are you? At one of the farms we visited, a woman brought out a letter she'd received from a state agency that she didn't understand. Dan told her he'd help her get the right form submitted. You have to uh, fill out a a current use application, change of ownership. I'll see if I can get one online for you. You could see that the trust between them, you know, that they were, it's almost like he was an emissary from the outside world and he was translating that letter, which was from the tax department or something, about what they had, some complicated property tax thing. Later on, I asked him how he felt about playing this role. You know, we have internet, we... We can do so many things differently than they do, and they they do things the way that I wish they still were, <laughs> you know, because uh, I grew up on a farm, and, you know, it was all hands-on, and technology today has kind of taken a lot of that away. And so, yeah, I still have to, if there's something going on in Pennsylvania or Ohio, family issues, I get a phone call. I'm kind of the guy in between. So I have to drive up and give them the bad news or tell them what's going on. Uh, so yeah, like today, they're just not sure what they're supposed to be doing with that document that they got in the mail. Uh, and I and I know what I've got to do with it. So I'm I'm curious when you talk about you know things the way they were versus how they are now. What do you feel like is lost when we work more with technology and less with hands-on techniques? Uh, worth ethics. You know, I think the new generation coming up, they're too busy to uh, do their work because they're on the phone all the time. They're checking the internet. They're, you know, I grew up on a farm and we had our duties, we had our chores, and that's what you did every day. And I just don't think that the work ethic is there anymore. And I think we see it well, I see it from uh, other people in the construction field that they say they can't can't find good employees anymore because uh, uh, they get there when they want and they half the time they're on their phones and I know of a few businesses that have builders that have decided not to be contractors anymore because they can't find help. So. Based on what you found out up there, what? seems to be next for the Amish community in Vermont. Well, Dan told me that uh, there is another group of Amish people looking in um, near Jay, I think in North Troy. And Dan said that he thinks that they want to separate themselves a little from the existing Amish community because they don't want to infringe on their land because, Hmm. you know, both communities will be expanding. So um, it sounds as though more people could be coming. Nobody has bought farms, but they have been approaching realtors up there about buying farms. I'm curious, generally, 
you know, we've seen a lot of examples in recent years of Vermont towns not necessarily being friendly to groups of outsiders. And in some cases, specifically religious minorities, there was the Mormon project down in southern Vermont. There's been debate about refugee resettlement in Rutland. What do you think it is that is different about this group that makes the people in the area a little bit maybe more friendly and more willing to cooperate? I don't know if the if the Amish knew this about Vermont before they came, but I, I do think that people in Vermont respect hard work. They certainly respect agriculture, especially in that area. And the Amish fit in very, very well in many ways um, in a community that hasn't visibly changed since you know the 19th century in many ways. The Amish love the dirt roads because it's easier on their horses, and, and they farm and they build barns and they work with the forest and the woods. So those are all things that, you know, they actually fit in really, really well to the community that's already there. They have like these kind of very Vermonty ideals to begin with. They do. They're even, they don't specifically want or at all organic certification, but they farm with organic principles. And they're also tough and hardy, which I think is a, those are qualities respected in Vermont. You know, they, they work outside and they cut their own wood. And we saw a lot of Amish people when we were up there barefoot, who, even though it was in the 40s, probably it was cold. I mean, I had a down jacket on. They walk around barefoot and they hang their laundry outside and they, they tough it out. With a, they, they do have a gas generator for probably for heating their water in the house. But, you know, they're not, they're not coming up and building the type of structures that would stick out in a rural Vermont town. If you didn't see the carriages in their and the black garments hanging on their lines, you wouldn't necessarily know a farm was Amish, except that there's no cars in the driveway. I really like working with the Amish because what they do with the land and uh, their culture and, you know, I guess reminds me a lot of my upbringing, and I think that's one of my 34 years of experience in real estate. One of my greatest sale, I guess, <laughs> is getting them up here and, and working with them. find Ann Wallace Allen's full report on Vermont's Amish community, along with photos from Amish farms around Brownington, at vtdigger.org. The Deeper Dig is our weekly podcast. We post new episodes on Fridays at vtdigger.org. You can also subscribe to receive new episodes automatically. Just search for The Deeper Dig in iTunes or in your smartphone's podcast app. Also, shout out to our new listeners on WDEV Radio in Central Vermont. You can hear our show every Friday around 5.40 p.m. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger Newsroom. Have a nice weekend. Mm-hmm.